Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning. Wonderful to be with you this morning. You know, when we gather like this, this morning we celebrated uh, Brian and Mandy being back with us, and not just Brian and Mandy, but a lot of their family that uh, now lives down in Texas. They've been with us at various times over the last few years. Um, So we have great joy we celebrate when we gather together on Sundays, oftentimes, and then, of course, um, with a group of any size, you also know that there are difficulties and trials and challenges that people face as well. Uh, Just this week, um, Jim and Kathy Jordahl and Abby uh, lost someone that they love very dearly. Jim's mother passed away, and um, she she was a dear saint, and so they know that she is with the Lord now. Nevertheless, that's a challenging thing that that we face. I know when my dad passed away a couple of years ago, I knew where he was, but I still couldn't see him, talk to him. I couldn't call him up like I had before. So there is joy and there's sorrow and there's others going through difficult, very challenging things here in this room this morning. And But the amazing thing is that Jesus stands over all of it. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Savior of the whole world. Jesus is the Savior of those who are full of despair and full of discouragement and full of sorrow. And Jesus is the Savior of those rejoicing and full of joy. Reminds me of what Paul said that I oftentimes uh, didn't really understand what he meant by this. But in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul said, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And maybe a couple years ago, it just dawned on me that anytime you're you know, you just interact with people, there's reason to rejoice and there's reason to have sorrow, right? I mean, there's reason to, you, we're, to, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And if you're around those people, you, ex- you experience the emotions of sorrow and joy. And Paul said, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Of course, in Christ, we have much to rejoice in at all times, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of sorrow. So as we come to Isaiah 50, we see something so sweet about Jesus. We see something so amazing about Christ. And this morning, I want us to, here's where I'm aiming this morning. I heard a a motto, one of the mottos of Salvation Army. Ever heard of Salvation Army? We've seen Salvation Army. Who, Who knows the history of Salvation Army, at least a little bit? Okay, William Booth, Catherine Booth, they started Salvation Army and uh, in, in England in the 1800s, one of their mottos was this, saved to serve. We are saved to serve, okay? We are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our service. We are saved by God's free grace through Jesus Christ, by his merit, by the merit of Jesus. But we are saved to serve. And if you know anything about the Salvation Army, though they may have gotten away from their roots now, for a long time, they were radicals in the sense that they went after, they went into the darkest places and radically served in order to see people come to know Christ. And what they were doing when they did that was they were following their master, Jesus. For Matthew 28 says this about Jesus, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You guys remember the story in John 13 when Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet? You guys know where that story? Okay. And when they get to the end of the, when Jesus gets to the end of this act of washing their feet, he says, if you see what I've done for you, you will do the same thing. Now, of course, it was more than an act of washing feet. He was foreshowing them what he was going to do. He was going to perfectly clean them. He was going to serve them in the ultimate way by laying down his life for them on the cross. But he says, if you see what I'm doing for you, you will do the same for others. There's a principle in the scripture that when we behold something, when we behold something and love what we behold, we become like it or like a person. It's, you know, in 2 Corinthians 3, this principle is obviously applied to Jesus that we behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here in Isaiah 50, here's my aim this morning. I want us to see Jesus Christ as this servant in Isaiah 50. And as we see him, that we become more and more like him. That we wouldn't just become intellectually more astute or have better theology. That's great. That's important. But that we would see Christ with the eyes of faith and we would become like him. Because what we see in Isaiah 50 is the third of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Weeks ago, when we went through chapter 42, I think I mentioned the servant songs. They are referencing the servant of the Lord. And these servant songs specifically mean speaking of Jesus Christ. The first was when I, excuse me, the first was in Isaiah 42. The second was in Isaiah 49. This is the third one. And the fourth one, which is most famous, is Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And it's like Isaiah is climbing higher and higher up the mountain of God's revelation regarding this servant of the Lord. And of course, Isaiah is wondering something that you and I don't have to wonder. He's wondering, who is this servant? When is he going to come? How will I know it's him? Of course, we know that it's Christ. So this morning, I want you to see Jesus Christ as this servant. And when you see him and behold him by the eyes of faith, you become more like him. So let's jump into Isaiah 50. The first three verses, God's people must be feeling as though God has utterly rejected them. God says, where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? God is saying, I've sent you away. I've sold you to one of my creditors. And no doubt, God's people, the Israelites, were feeling like God had utterly rejected them. But God explains very quickly that it was because of their own sin that he sent them away. And then he asks a rhetorical question and reassures them by asking this question, is my hand so short that it cannot redeem? Is God's hand so short that he cannot redeem? And then he reminds them of what he did by bringing them out of Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 3. Actually, verse 2 and 3. He says, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the seas. Reminding them of how he brought them out. He's reminding them of the exodus when he brought them out of Egypt and he dried up the sea. He did marvelous works before them. God's hand is not so short that he cannot rescue. 
not only that, but he, he caused the skies to be covered with darkness and with sackcloth, probably referring to the first Passover when the angel of the Lord came and passed over all the Israelites and killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. So is God's hand so short that he cannot rescue? Absolutely not. But here what we see is that though they can recall the first exodus where God brought them out of Egypt with his strong right hand, we see that Israel needs a different kind of exodus now. They need a different kind of liberty. They need a far greater exodus than what we see in the book of Exodus. They need a heart exodus. They need their hearts to be liberated and set free. More than being dislocated geographically, as you know, as we go through Isaiah, as we've gone through Isaiah here, Isaiah is speaking to exiles in Babylon, but more than their, more than their, their, um, more than being dislocated geographically, their hearts have been dislocated from their God. More than being alienated in a foreign land, their hearts have been alienated from their God and Savior, from their Redeemer. So where God's servant Israel has failed, Israel has failed, the nation of Israel, to obey God, to keep covenant with God. God made a covenant with them. They failed on their end of the bargain. God will raise up another servant who will not fail, who will not only reconcile God's people to their land, but even more importantly, he will reconcile God's people to God himself. And this brings us to our servant song, verses 4 to 9. Verses 4 to 9 is the third servant song. Imagine God singing this, or in this case, Jesus Christ himself singing this song about himself. What is striking about this servant song compared to the others is that all the other three speak in the third person. They speak of the servant as he will do this. He is like that. But this one speaks in the first person. It is as though Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. And he says, here I am. Here is what I am like. Here is what I've come to do. I'm describing myself here. Jesus, when he came in the flesh, would read these words in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 50, and would see himself being spoken of. So in a sense, we get this open, unveiled view of the interior life of Jesus himself. I think it's amazing. It's totally fascinating. We get this interior view of how Jesus saw himself in his work that he would come and do. I want you to see this morning three wonderful things about the servant described here. I want you to behold by faith the servant, as he's described in three ways here. The first way that the servant is described, or the first thing I want you to see, is that this servant is a divinely called prophet. In verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word 
him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This servant is a divinely called prophet. He spoke the prophetic word of God. He was able to speak directly to people who were broken and downcast and hurting, who needed a word to sustain them. This servant was going to be a prophet of the Lord who would speak words of life. He was able to deal with the individual, the one who is weary and needed a word to sustain him. Jesus was able to cut, excuse me, bring comfort to the brokenhearted with a prophetic word. And you might ask, how was he able to do this? How was Jesus able to do this? Here's how he was able to do it. Because he had an ear that was awakened to the word of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We may think, we may think well, but he was God, wasn't he? Well, of course he was God, but he was also fully man. And I think what, what, what comes out in Isaiah chapter 50 is the human nature of Jesus Christ as the servant, as the one who came, whose ear was awakened to the words of the Father. It was intimacy with his Father that, that fueled Jesus Christ's prophetic ministry. In one place, Jesus said these amazing words. He said, my words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But how? Well, John 8, 38 tells us it's because Jesus said, I speak of what I've seen from my father. He didn't come with his own agenda. He didn't come with his own words. He spoke the words of his father. He learned as someone who was taught Isn't that interesting? It says that here. He has the tongue of those who are taught that he may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, the father awakened him, awakened his ear to hear his words. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was always pointing his disciples to the father. And by doing this, he was teaching them to be like himself. To hear and listen to and soak in the words of God. This was Jesus' discipleship program. He says, I'm always pointing people to my father. I I only speak what my father tells me to speak. I only do what I see him doing. And I'm pointing my disciples to the father. This was how he made disciples. Perhaps you've heard someone say, or you yourself have said something like this. What does God want from me in life? What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And it begs this question in response. Are you reading God's word? Are you in the Bible? Do you have this book open? And are you looking here for answers? When you say, what does God want me to do in this situation? What is wisdom for now? What is God's will for life? Jesus got it from his father's words. He learned from his father. And we ought to learn from the father's well through the scriptures. This is how Jesus was fitted for speaking. This intimate knowledge of the father and of the teaching of his father. Morning by morning, he says, he awakens me. He awakens my ear as those who are taught. 
This too is how we can have a prophetic ministry, have prophetic words that carry power. Does anyone here want to be able to speak a prophetic word that carries power with it? Do you? I do. Don't just think of ecstatic, something ecstatic, but just to speak a word to someone, to sustain them, to speak a word to those who are weary and sustain them, to actually bring blessing to them. Who doesn't want to do that? Who names the name of Christ? We all do. <clears throat> it comes by having an ear that's awakened to God's word. This is how we can have a ministry that is God-breathed. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to bring blessing, to build up, to strengthen, to edify. This is how we can have a ministry that's God-breathed and God-besought when morning by morning, your heavenly Father has awakened your ear to his word and enables you to speak a word to the weary. You might say, well, I, every time I open up the Bible, nothing happens. I don't get it. It's too confusing. It's too big. I don't know where to start. All these questions, right? It doesn't help. Let me ask you one question in response. When you open up the Bible, if you do, and I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope from today you will. When you open up the Bible, do you come to learn? Do you come as a disciple to sit at the feet of God and be one who is taught by God himself? Or do you come to check off a box? Maybe you're getting through a Bible reading plan, you know? Or maybe, maybe it's a way of getting God in your debt in a sense. Hey, listen, God, I'm getting in your word and you're not doing anything for me. Are you coming as one who wants to learn? One who's sitting at the feet of God, wants to be a disciple and wants him to speak through his word to you. Of course, the former is an attitude of a disciple to come and learn. I'm, I'm just here to learn. That's what Jesus did, right? His ear was awakened as one who was learning. If Jesus needed to learn, and he didn't sin ever, do we need to learn? You guys with me? Do we need to learn? We need to learn, right? The form, that's the attitude of a disciple. The other is the attitude of, of the self-righteous. Just, just checking a box or just doing it in order to get God to do something for you. We need to come as one who wants to learn. Let's pray that God would awaken our ear morning by morning so that we can learn and grow and then that we could have a prophetic word. We could take up that mantle of being able to speak a prophetic word to those who need a word to sustain them, to those who are weary and broken. So this servant is a divinely called prophet speaking the life-giving sustaining words of God because he was taught by God. <clears throat> Not only that, but this servant was, is a divinely appointed priest. He's a prophet. He's also a divinely appointed priest. Verses 5 and 6 say this, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face and from disgrace and spitting. Now, verse 4 says, he awakens my ear. 
And verse 5 says, he opens my ear. Is there any difference here? Or is this just saying essentially the same thing? I suppose if you have young kids here this morning, or kids of any age, and you might be able to remember when they were young, there are times you wonder if your child's ear is open, don't you? And maybe you even say, are you listening? Is your ear open? I'm telling you to do something. I'm asking you to do something, and you're not responding. And maybe, jokingly, hopefully jokingly, you even go up and grab their ear and talk into it. You don't scream, but you talk into it and say, is this ear open? The servant here is saying, not only has he awakened my ear to learn, but he's also opened my ear in the sense that I'm ready to obey. He is the priest of God. He is the divinely appointed priest, the servant, who comes to do all God's will that he is sent to do. So I think the servant is here talking about hearing in such a way that he bows in submission and obedience. In fact, I think what what is really being brought out here is the, the principle in the scriptures of being a bondservant. In Exodus chapter 21, there's this, there's this principle of, being, of, of a bondservant where if a master says to a servant, you're free to go now, and the servant loves his master so much and says, I don't want to be free from you. Then he can go to the master and say, I love you. I want to stay here. I want to be your servant forever. And the master can take him to the door, po- or the, 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 the door of his home and bore a hole in his ear with an awl and make him his permanent servant. It's just a way of saying he is now marked, his ear is marked, that he belongs to this master. His ear is always open to this master to listen and to obey. It's very similar to what Paul, or excuse me, what David said in Psalm 40, verse 6, when David says, sacrifice and offering, God, you don't care about, but you have given me an open ear. In other words, David is saying, sacrifice and offering, you're not really concerned about that. If we're just going to leave and do our own thing, right? We're going to walk in disobedience. No, no, no. Sacrifice and offering, you don't care. You've given me an ear of obedience to bow in submission to you as master. In the Gospels, particularly in John, we see Jesus affirming over and over again this point. I always do the will of my Father. I've only come to do His will. So, like the bondservant in Exodus 21, like David in Psalm 40, Christ The servant here in Isaiah 50 submits to the father because he does not want to be free from his father. You know, in the Christian life, we talk a lot about freedom, right? And we did earlier. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. There's freedom in Christ. But one freedom we should never, ever want is freedom from obedience to God. And so if you think freedom in Christ is leading you in a place of disobedience, then you need to turn around and repent. For Jesus himself said, you've opened my ear. I'm here to obey. I'm here to do all that you've called me to do. 
And this obedience that the servant is called to, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50, or namely Jesus Christ, is hard and painful. His priestly ministry is going to be hard and painful. We see in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, what theologians have long called the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. He is fully active. He says, I was not rebellious. I was not rebellious. I gave my back, or excuse me, I did not turn my back. I stayed the course. I stayed on the path. I stayed, I went in the direction I was told to go. I was not rebellious. But we also see that he was passive in the sense that he allowed things to happen to him. His cheek was struck. His beard was plucked out. His back was whipped and beaten. He was fully obedient to all that God had called him to. We don't see here in Isaiah 50, but the prophet Isaiah will get more revelation very soon. And we do know that from Isaiah 52 and 53, where this is going, right? Isaiah 53, you guys, when I say it, many of you are going to know, he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed, right? Of course, that's, that's where things are going. That's the end of the priestly ministry of the servant of Jesus Christ. So we see that this servant who is an appointed priest, his end, the end of his obedience is going to also require that he's not only the priest, but also the sacrifice. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that the active and passive obedience of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Christ, find their designed end as the priest gives himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Philippians 2 says, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is such a beautiful truth. I mean, in a sense, it's so simple that a preschool age kid can learn and understand it, right? We sing a song here on Sundays, Jesus paid it all. And the chorus goes like this, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. There's nothing difficult about that, is there? Now, of course, our, our minds need to be opened up to the truth of it, but it's a very straightforward and simple thing. Young children can understand that. So in one sense, it's very simple. In another sense, it is so profound that the greatest theologians, the greatest spiritual intellects that have ever lived will never plumb the depths of this truth. We sing another song here called, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. I can't remember all the words of that song, but they're deep, okay? They're deep. We cannot plumb the depths of the love of Jesus, of the sacrificial work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, as he offered up himself as a sacrifice Paul said in Galatians 2, he loved me and he gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So this servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50, is a divinely appointed priest who does not come empty-handed, but offers himself as a sacrifice as well. He is a divinely appointed priest. But this servant is not only a divinely called prophet 
and a divinely appointed priest, he's also a divinely exalted king. Verses 7 to 9. Prior in verse 6, it says that he did not hide his face from being spit on and disgrace. But verse 7 says, the Lord has helped me. He helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Jesus Christ is grace itself. The attempt by the satanic powers and the rulers of the age at that time, the Romans and the Jewish people, was to disgrace Jesus Christ. But here it says they did not succeed in disgracing him because the Father helped him and he was not disgraced. Now we see he rides out to battle steadfast and confident in the victory that he's going to secure. Look at verse 7. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I've set my face steadfastly on my mission. There is nothing that will stop me, he's saying. And I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who's going to contend with me, the servant says. Let us stand together. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This king rides out to victory. Verse, or Luke, verse, excuse me, Luke 9, chapter, verse 51, excuse me, says that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12, we see that Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. When I read these verses, verses 7 to 9, about Christ, it sounds very familiar to another passage, to another set of verses, namely the verses Romans 8, 31 to 39. Notice these words of Paul in Romans 8 when he says, Who will separate me from the love of Christ? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Jesus here is saying, Who is going to declare me guilty? Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Where did Paul get this in Romans 8? How did Paul know this? Because he belonged to the one who first said it. Jesus Christ first said this. He said, who's going to contend with me? Let him stand up against me. Let him bring it on is what Jesus is saying. All the enemies spoken of in verses 8 and 9. Those who will bring a charge. Those who will declare this servant guilty. Those who will contend with him. The adversary he conquers All of them. At the end of verse 9, it says, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The picture we get here is of the enemies of this servant coming to him and tying him up with wraps or with with a garment. And if you know what moths do to clothes, if if they're there long enough, they will just totally disintegrate fabric. So if you begin to touch it, it just kind of falls apart. But all of these enemies, though they try to wrap up this servant, he will break the bonds like they were moth-eaten. 
and utterly destroy his enemies. And of course, this points ultimately to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the bonds of death, the last enemy itself, could not hold him, could never hold him. Which is why Peter says in Acts 2.24 in his famed sermon on the day of Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is our master. This is our king. This divinely exalted king. He calls all of his enemies to the field of battle and triumphs over all of them. Here's the amazing thing about this. This prophet, this priest, this king. I've been saying it throughout, but it's so easy. To, it's so easy to miss. He came to serve. He came to serve. If there's anyone who's ever lived. That could be proud enough. To appoint people to serve him. It's this man, right? But he came to serve. He is called the servant of the Lord. He has come not to be served, but to serve. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah is probably wondering, this is a servant? This is the servant of the Lord who speaks these words? Who's called to be this priest? Who's called to be this king? Who is he? Where is he coming from? When will he come? How will we know when he's here? Of course, we don't need to ask those questions at all. We know this, of course, is Jesus Christ who said that he came not to be served, but to serve. In light of this, in light of this, Isaiah issues a challenge at the end of Isaiah 50. He issues a challenge at the end of our chapter here. There's two groups Isaiah addresses. And if you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to get this. This is life and death right here. This is life and death. He's talking to the Israelites who said, we are God's people. He addresses two people, two groups of people, excuse me, and he addresses them, addresses them accordingly. One group of people, he speaks such sweet words of comfort. To another group of people, he speaks strong words of judgment. In verse 10, he speaks such amazing, sweet words. This is the word, back in verse 4, that is a word to sustain the weary. So you're weary here today? This is his word for you. This is it. This is his word for you today. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant who came to serve? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is a word spoken back in verse 4 that this prophet comes and he's learned and he has a tongue of one who's learned and he speaks a word that's able to sustain the weary. This is the word. Those who are walking in darkness. Now some may say darkness, 
I thought we'd been brought out of darkness and into light. But it's not hard to see that we sometimes walk through dark times, don't we? We go through challenges and difficulties. Maybe it's a situation or circumstance in life. Maybe it is the onslaught of the enemy and you just feel overwhelmed by darkness. Maybe it is sin. Quite frankly, oftentimes it probably is sin. This is his word to those who are weary. Trust in the name of the Lord. And rely upon your God. Rely upon your God. Lean upon God. No doubt, if you're walking through hard times, you are leaning upon something, right? We always lean upon something. I heard somebody one time say, Christianity is a crutch, to which our response should be, of course it is. Of course it is. But I need more than a crutch, right? Because I was dead in my sins. I needed life from the dead. You're leaning on something. You're going through challenges. You're going through difficulties. Here's a word to sustain you. Your God can sustain you. Lean upon him. Rely upon him. Let him be your hope. Let him be your stronghold. He will never disappoint you. He will never put you to shame. He is this servant that we just heard about. This is who he is. How do you know that he's trustworthy? Here's how you know. He died for you. He died for you. Is there anything else he could do to prove that he is faithful and that he is trustworthy? Is there anything else he could do? He did it all. I mean, he did. He paid the ultimate price on the cross. He said, this work that I've been sent to do, it is finished for all who trust in me. It's done. And we're reconciled to God. So we don't have to live as strangers to him any longer. We're going through difficulties. We're going through trials. It is so easy, is it not? We can all attest to this, I think, if we're honest, that it's much easier in the flesh to lean on something that we can see, feel, and touch. Another person, some kind of, you know, some kind of substance, right? Something. But Jesus has come. This servant has come to bring us back to God so that we no longer have to live as strangers to God. And I fear that many professing Christians are largely strangers to the God they sing to on Sunday mornings. In life, I'm talking about just in the nuts and bolts of life. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Sunday evening, 5 o'clock, to Saturday, 5 o'clock. Living apart from God, largely. In our hearts, in our affections, in our minds, in our mindset. You don't have to do it any longer. Here's the word to sustain the weary. The servant has come to bring you back to God. Trust in him and rely upon him. Lean on him. Do it today. Verse 11, on the other hand, is a strong word of judgment to those who refuse. 
Here's what it says. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. It's really interesting what Isaiah is saying here. You who light your own fire and walk by the light of your own fire. Right? You lit it. You're walking by it. You think you're enlightened. You're walking by your own wisdom, your own strength, your own power, your own fire. This is what you can expect from God. You're going to lie down in torment. There's a way that seems right to a man, right? There's a way that seems right to these brains of ours. But it's a way that leads to destruction. Those who want to kindle their own fire and equip themselves with burning torches and walk by the light of their own fire, what they will receive from the Lord is judgment. They will lie down. They will lie down. They will die in torment. Such strong words from this servant that we just heard about who is merciful and gracious. And some might say, that just doesn't seem to fit the rest of this chapter. But let me, what if we put it this way? This servant is so glorious, so sweet, so merciful, so gracious. I mean, he came to the nth degree and did everything to reject him is the most horrendous thing we could ever do. To stiff arm him would be the worst thing we could ever do. Right? To say, you know what? I think I'm doing all right. I got my own torch here. I'm just going to walk by the light of my own light. What a horrendous thing to do. To despise the Savior and be self-assured and self-confident is to be in the darkest of darkness. Don't go there. Or maybe put your torch down. Put your torch down, your own torch, and come to the one who is spoken of in Isaiah 49, who will be a light for all the nations. Come to him. Walk in his light. In Matthew 20, I'm going to end with this. Verses 25 to 28, there are some disciples that are disputing about who's the greatest among them. James and John, and I think, I think, actually, I think in this story, their mother goes to Jesus and says, hey, when you enter into your kingdom, let my son sit on your right hand and left. And Jesus said, it's not given to me to allow that. And, uh, and Jesus knew what, what, what they were up to. They were boasting about who was the greatest again, except James and John got their mom involved this time. And um, Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be the greatest of all must be the lowest slave of everyone. And then he says, because the Son of Man himself came not to be served, 
but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The servant of the Lord, we know to be Jesus Christ. We are saved to follow our servant, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, in order to serve others. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for its power. Lord, I have no power in myself, God. I have no ability to try to coerce people. I should never try to do that. God, I pray that your word has and will continue to go forth this morning and pierce hearts and challenge and encourage and sustain the weary and um, encourage those who are walking by their own light to throw down their torches and behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here today. Thank you, Jesus, that you you don't just tell us to go serve others. You don't just say, just pull your boots up and just get to work. But you show us what you've done. And then you say, now follow me. Now follow me. Now that you've seen what I've done for you in the most amazing act, most amazing way, now follow me in serving others. Help us to do that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay seated just for a short, for just a few minutes. We're going to do Lord's Supper this morning.